This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Baby, I'm home. Oh, it smells in here. Did you leave something on the stove again? You gotta stop doing that. My family missed you. I wish you would have come with me. Hello? What have you been getting up to while I was gone? I've been trying to get in touch with you for days. Actually, don't tell me. You know what upsets me when I hear about your antics. Baby, where are you? <sighs> he must be down at that damn tavern. You've been drinking too much lately, Sonny. You're a boxer. You've got to keep up that physique if you're going to win any fights. <gasps> oh, my God. On January 5th, 1971, Geraldine Liston returned to her home in Las Vegas. Her relationship with her husband had never been perfect, but his drive and motivation had been infectious, which is why, even after she had not heard from him for several days, she never expected to find 39-year-old Sonny Liston, the former heavyweight champion of the world, dead at the foot of their bed. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder, and we try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This is our first episode on Sonny Liston, the notorious heavyweight boxer who died mysteriously in his Las Vegas home in 1970. This week, we'll examine the events leading up to his suspicious death. Next week, we'll uncover who may have been responsible for it. Charles Sonny Liston was born sometime between 1929 and 1932. He believed his birthday was May 8, 1932, but he was never sure. 
His mother, Helen Baskin, was able to give him several possibilities for the day he was born, but could never nail down an exact date. At times, she was even shaky on the year as well. Sonny wasn't given an easy start in life. He was the second youngest of his mother's 12 children and the 24th of 25 kids for his dad, Toby Liston, who had children from a previous marriage. The family lived in a small shack outside of Forest City, Arkansas. And with such a large family and few resources, Sonny was often cold and hungry. The hardships the Listons faced were only made worse by the fact that they were African-American, which meant that they faced segregation, prejudice, and institutionalized racism. From the time he was young, Sonny's father required that Sonny do his part by working on the family share crop. But with most of his time spent doing physical labor, there was little to no time left for school. In his childhood, he never learned to read or write. Sonny's father was abusive, both physically and emotionally. He often beat Sonny and other members of the family. Many people throughout Sonny's life would comment on the scars on his back, left by his father's beatings. By 1943, Sonny's mother had had enough and left for St. Louis to find factory work, leaving Sonny behind with his father. The boy was devastated. He felt completely abandoned, and he felt very little loyalty to his father. So the following year, in 1944, he left home to track down his mother in St. Louis. It wasn't easy finding his mother, but nothing in his life thus far had been easy. He searched high and low, eventually reuniting with her after several nights sleeping at a police station. When he was with his mother again, Sonny attempted to go to school for the first time, but he was ruthlessly teased for his illiteracy and soon dropped out. He attempted to find work, but could only find sporadic or temporary gigs. Used to physical labor, he was strong and capable, but he nevertheless struggled to land on his feet. As a black man in the South, finding steady work would be an uphill battle. Perhaps out of necessity, or maybe because he'd been hardened by the difficulties of his young life, Sonny soon turned to something more lucrative and a bit more reliable than hard labor. Crime. All right, lady. Hand over the bag and no one gets hurt. Uh, Oh, I... Oh, God! Uh, My purse! By 1950... Sonny had been charged with numerous muggings and had robbed gas stations and diners. When he was finally caught red-handed during a robbery at Unique Cafe on Market Street, he was sentenced to five years behind bars in the Missouri State Penitentiary. Sonny's prison papers reflect that he gave his age at the time as 20, though there was always a question as to whether that was accurate. By the time of his incarceration, Sonny had already seen a lot of hardship in his short life. But compared to what he had left behind, he found prison to be relatively straightforward. It was the first time he could rely on three regular meals a day. But, more importantly, it gave Sonny the opportunity to start boxing. He quickly showed an extreme aptitude for the sport, beating any and all inmates that challenged him. In fact, there was a running joke that Sonny would have to be matched against two or three people for anyone to have a fighting chance. The chaplains at the prison, Reverend Edward Schlatman and then Father Alois Stevens, took notice of Sonny, at first for his boxing prowess, and then for the person they saw behind the gloves, 
a genuine and dedicated human being, one whose talents could take him places. Father Stevens advocated heavily for Sonny and was able to get him out on parole after serving only two years of his sentence. Sonny walked away a free man on October 31, 1952. Father Stevens wanted to give Sonny a better life and a way to provide for himself, so he connected Sonny with a new family, a set of fight managers, including John Vitale, a notorious mobster who could hopefully get the kid's boxing career off the ground. They started Sonny fighting in the amateur boxing circuit, pinning him against local boxers. Sonny's only job was to win, which he did most of the time. He wasn't making much money yet, but that was okay. His fight managers had another way Sonny could repay them. All right, kid. You like money? Yes, sir. You like soft furs, gin martinis, riding around in nice cars? <laughs> well, yes, sir, I do. We'll take care of that. All you gotta do is keep boxing. But listen, sometimes we ask a little favor. You would do a little something for us. That sound good? I think so. What kind of favor? John Vitale and the other managers wanted to use him for another purpose besides boxing. Intimidation. When the mob needed to collect money or break some kneecaps, they sent Sonny Liston. And with his towering figure and impressive physique, he was quite effective. But this new gig didn't slow down his success in the amateur boxing circuit. Most notably, Sonny won the 1953 Chicago Golden Gloves Tournament and beat 1952 Olympic heavyweight champion Ed Sanders. That same year, he competed in the United States National Championships in Boston and in the International Golden Gloves Tournament in St. Louis. His coach, Tony Anderson, said that Sonny was the strongest fighter he had ever seen. To Sonny, the best fighter this side of the Mississippi. Nah, he'd match gloves with any chap on both sides of the river. Salute. Now, Sonny, we were thinking, with all this winning you've been doing, it's about time you swing those mitts with the pros. <laughs> that sounds great, sir, but I know I don't have the money for it. <laughs> Listen to this guy talking about money. You just leave that to us. You know we have connections. All you gotta do is just keep on being a star. Now, can we get another round over here, Barkeep? In September 1953, Sonny Liston went pro with financial backing from the mob. If his fight managers had felt at all like they were taking a risk on Sonny, well, their gamble paid off. Sonny won seven consecutive fights over the next year. The newly minted star was now bringing in real money, and for the first time in his life, he was able to not have the constant worry of money buzzing in the background. For the first time, too, he was known for something other than being a neighborhood menace. He was becoming famous as a boxer. Still, he may have been revered as an athlete, but he wasn't necessarily seen by the white public in a favorable light. They saw him as a violent caricature, a racial stereotype. The press often referred to him as a beast. The fame made sure that Sonny did less dirty work for the mob, but he continued to get into trouble with the police. Perhaps it was his abusive upbringing, or maybe it was simply the only life he knew. 
Or perhaps it was that any time Sonny ventured out of a quote-unquote black area, he was routinely stopped by the police. He was understandably frustrated by this treatment and wasn't above letting the police know it. It became a self-fueling cycle where racist cops stopped Sonny because he was black, which led to Sonny's angry and violent outbursts, which led to more stops by the police. A particularly volatile altercation with an officer occurred in 1956. Sonny was sitting in a cab with a friend when he was stopped by a policeman. Sonny claimed that the cop berated him with racial slurs. Sonny responded by grabbing the cop's gun and hitting him over the head with it. After lifting the cop in the air, he slammed him back down to the ground with such force that he broke the cop's knee. There's no denying Sonny's treatment of the cop was violent. But the incident was described sensationally in the papers in a way that was much more sympathetic to a white point of view. The white public read an account of Sonny being repeatedly hit over the head with a billy stick and being completely unfazed by it. This cemented the idea in the public's minds that Sonny was a dangerous monster, a beast who could not be stopped. As a result, the boxer was sentenced to nine months in a St. Louis workhouse for the incident. But soon after he was paroled early, he was stopped by a cop again. This cop ended up stuffed into a trash can, and Sonny was given an ultimatum. He could either leave St. Louis, or the police would see to it that he died there. They were going to keep stopping him every time they saw him on the street. The cycle would continue until Sonny was dead. Sonny's fight managers immediately sold his contract to a new set of managers in Philadelphia. For the first time since he ventured into town as a young boy looking for his mother, Sonny would be leaving St. Louis. But he wasn't moving to the straight and narrow. His new managers had deep connections to organized crime, including the infamous Frankie Carbo, a Murder, Inc. gunman turned boxing promoter. But it wasn't all boxing. Sonny was enjoying having money to spend and a set of well-connected friends to enjoy spending it with. It was while he was living in Philly that Sonny met and married his wife, Geraldine Chambers. Sonny loved Geraldine, but he was also enjoying his status as a famous boxer, taking advantage of the access it granted him with women. Geraldine knew that she never had 100% of her husband's attention in their marriage, but she also felt that it didn't matter as long as Sonny loved her when he was with her. She was always a fiercely loyal and devoted wife to Sonny. There you are. I must have dozed off while I was waiting for you. What time is it? Late. Where were you? Just out with Frankie and the boys. I see. Well, come to bed. I know you love me, Sonny. You just have a funny way of showing it. You're too good to me, Geraldine. Sonny's unfaithfulness had some unintended consequences, and it is believed that he may have fathered several children with other women. Legend has it that Geraldine and Sonny were sitting in a diner when a waitress presented the couple with a child who was Sonny's son. (laughs) So then I said to Tony, Oh, Susie, good to see you. I didn't know you'd had a baby. He's a very handsome little fellow. Yeah? Well, this handsome little fellow is half Sonny. And we were wondering what his worse half was going to do about it. 
Sonny and Geraldine adopted the little boy and raised him. His name was Daniel, and Geraldine never thought of him any differently than if he were her own son. All the while, Sonny continued making strides in the boxing ring. His impressive size and incredibly large hands were a force to be reckoned with. He won match after match until he was the number one contender for the heavyweight champion of the world. The only problem was public perception of Sonny still wasn't great. Large swaths of the country were overtly racist, and the press often referred to him in extremely offensive terms. Well, not to mention that Liston's connections to organized crime were not exactly a secret. These connections made Sonny a despised figure, despite his success. He was booed frequently when he won matches, and other boxers were not too keen on fighting this controversial figure. Most notably, the heavyweight champion of the world, Floyd Patterson. Patterson's team refused to accept Sonny's challenge until he switched to management, effectively ending his relationship with the mob. Sonny did so in May of 1961, tagging George Katz as his new manager. He hoped this would end the rumors of his connections to Frank Palermo and Frankie Carbo, opening the door for him to challenge for the title. Unfortunately, Sonny dug himself in a deeper hole, one that he had little chance to get out of. In late 1961, Sonny was accused of posing as a cop and harassing a woman in a public park. Sonny denied the accusations, but it didn't matter. His boxing license was indefinitely suspended. Just as he was about to reach the pinnacle of his sporting career, it looked as though Sonny Liston would never box again. Coming up, we'll look at Sonny's reaction to losing his license and the events that led up to his mysterious death. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now back to the story. By the early 1960s, Sonny Liston was on the cusp of becoming the greatest boxer in the world. His large frame, powerful hands, and vicious left hook were obliterating opponent after opponent in the ring. Only one fighter stood in his way, Floyd Patterson. But after his latest run-in with the police, Sonny's boxing license was suspended. He was legally no longer allowed to fight. He was devastated. With nothing left for him in Philadelphia, Sonny spent time in Denver, later relocating there. It was here that he connected with a Jesuit priest named Father Edward Patrick Murphy. Sonny, welcome. Hi, Father. Sonny, I believe that you are a good man. I don't think that you've done any of the things they say you have. Thank you. I appreciate that. There are bad people in this world. People who only see black and white and can't see beyond. Who let their own prejudice get in the way of rational thinking of compassion. I want to help you, Sonny. You're not a monster. You're a good man. Three months later, Father Edward helped Sonny get the charges dropped and his boxing license reinstated. 
It was the second time a religious man had given him a lifeline, and Sonny was grateful. And more importantly, Sonny Liston was back in business and back on the path to becoming the greatest heavyweight boxer in the world. In September of 1962, Sonny finally got his chance to fight Floyd Patterson. After nearly two years of anticipation, the fight brought two of the generation's greatest into one ring. But those that were expecting an epic and long match were greatly disappointed. Sonny Liston knocked the heavyweight champion out in just over two minutes flat. He was now the world's greatest boxer. But even this did little to help his reputation. He received little to no fanfare when he returned to Philadelphia and was booed when he knocked Patterson out again in 1963. But he was still the champ, and he remained the champ until a young up-and-comer, a 22-year-old named Cassius Clay, defeated him in February of 1964. But it was Sonny's second fight with Muhammad Ali that went down as one of the most controversial moments in boxing history. Having lost to Ali once, Sonny was determined not to do it again. He trained aggressively and relentlessly for the rematch, which was scheduled for November 13, 1964. Sonny pushed his body to its limits preparing for this fight and was understandably frustrated when the match had to be rescheduled due to emergency hernia surgery for Ali. He honestly wasn't sure he could take his body to that extreme a second time. Sonny may have been as old as 34 at this point, while Ali was a young man of 22. Rumors began to swirl at this time of alcohol and drug abuse on Sonny's part. We can't definitively confirm if this was true, but we do know that he was putting himself through a lot at this time, physically. The new date for Sonny's rematch with Ali was May 25th, 1965. A huge crowd came to see which of the two star boxers would emerge victorious. But the fight was much shorter than anyone could have anticipated. In the first round, Ali threw a light punch that inexplicably knocked Sonny to the ground. From some angles, it didn't even look like the punch had connected with Sonny's body. But he went down and stayed there, all the same. People were shocked. Sonny, a massive, towering figure, had essentially been knocked over with a feather. Even Ali had trouble believing it. And the winner is Muhammad Ali. Sonny Liston is down for the count. One of the craziest damn things I've ever seen. Many people simply could not accept what had happened and thought that the only plausible explanation was that Sonny had thrown the fight. Theories circulated as to why Sonny may have done so. All he would say on the matter was that Ali had thrown a good punch that had injured his shoulder and taken him down. But years later, in an interview with Sports Illustrated, he had a different take on the situation. And can you tell me about the infamous rematch with Muhammad Ali in 65? Sure. Listen, man. That guy was crazy. I didn't want anything to do with him. And the Muslims were coming up. Who needed that? So I went down. I wasn't hit. So you fixed the match? I'm not saying yes, but I'm not saying no. You know what I'm saying? I... I think I do. 
The Muslims Sonny referenced in the article were the Nation of Islam. Just months before the rematch, members of the group had killed Malcolm X on February 21, 1965. Muhammad Ali was affiliated with the Nation of Islam, and by some accounts, Sonny had been on the fence about doing the fight in the months before out of fear of being killed himself. Now, many people thought it was possible that Sonny had thrown the match at the group's urging, or more likely, at their threatening. There's another piece of the story that lends credibility to this theory. Before the match, Sonny had moved to Vegas to train, and it was here that he met and became pals with an infamous bookie named Ash Resnick. Well, many believe that Resnick brokered a deal with the Nation of Islam in which Sonny would receive a portion of all of Ali's future earnings in exchange for throwing the match. Sonny did receive medical attention for the shoulder injury that knocked him out, but it's easy to see how this offer might have been compelling. Whether losing the match was something Sonny chose or not, life was not the same after losing twice to Muhammad Ali. If he had been treated ruthlessly by the press and the public before, it was nothing compared to now. He was a laughing stock and a joke. Sonny moved his family permanently to Las Vegas and began spending less time boxing and more time with his new pal, Ash Resnick, according to the New York Post, who liked to think of himself as Sonny's personal concierge. <laughs> Sonny Liston, my man. Listen, whatever you need, I got you. You need women? I'll get you women. You need a party? I'll take you to the best party you ever seen. You need a little pick-me-up? I'm your guy. Pick-me-up? We talking drugs? Only the finest. Now we're talking. Resnick had an extremely sordid reputation, even by Vegas standards. Like many people in Sonny's life, he was closely tied to the mob, and he opened the door to more serious drug activity for Sonny. Sonny was no longer bringing in the cash he once did and immediately began to rack up gambling debts upon setting foot in Vegas. He needed a new source of income. With help from Resnick, Sonny began selling drugs and, according to some, using them as well. By the year 1970, Sonny was living a fast life in Vegas. He was partying every night running a mid-level drug operation, and had a mistress on the side. He was still doing some lower-level fights, but had branched out into acting and music, playing roles in the films Harlow, Moonfire, and Head, which starred the Monkees. Additionally, he appeared in an episode of the TV show Love, American Style, and was in a commercial with Andy Warhol for Braniff Airlines. On Christmas Eve 1970, Sonny's wife Geraldine left Vegas to spend time with her family in St. Louis. She took their adopted son Daniel with her. Sonny stayed behind, saying that he wanted to enjoy the Strip at holiday time. Each year, Las Vegas turned into a quiet company town over Christmas before becoming an all-out hedonistic paradise over New Year's. On Christmas Day 1970, Sonny met some friends at the town tavern, showing up with two white showgirls, one on each arm. His friend Clyde Watkins remembers noting that his friend Sonny was in high spirits. Hey, Sonny! Merry Christmas! You too, Clyde-o. What are you doing later? Coming to your house to eat. 
Oh, please do. You know nothing would make me and my wife happier. According to one source, on Monday the 28th, Sonny had breakfast at a local haunt with a Las Vegas boxing ref named Davey Pearl. The two men went over plans for an upcoming fight of Sonny's. Afterwards, Sonny hopped in his car and drove to Hollywood. He was in L.A. by that evening when he checked into the Biltmore Hotel and had dinner with his talent agent. Sonny, I see big things for you. You're a household name. Now, let's bring you into their houses every night on the TV. I like the sound of that. Yeah? I'm going to need you to come out to L.A. more. Anything holding you back from that? Not a thing. Let's do it. According to the same source, phone records from Sonny's car phone show he made a few calls that day. Two were to Geraldine, and one was to Paramount Studios, where he had a meeting scheduled for the next day. On Tuesday, December 29th, Sonny Liston drove onto the Paramount lot and took a meeting with casting director Jim Merrick. In the days before the new year, Sonny was making a lot of plans for the future. After the meeting, he checked out of his hotel and headed back home to Vegas. According to an article printed in the Las Vegas Sun, one of the last people to see Sonny alive was a man named John Sleeper. Sonny had fared much better with the police in Las Vegas than he ever had in Denver, Philly, or St. Louis. And a large reason for that was that he allegedly had a man inside the Las Vegas Police Department looking out for him. Even when Sonny had been present during drug busts where everyone else went to jail, Sonny somehow walked away without a scratch or a charge pressed against him. It seems likely that the person who pulled strings for Sonny was John Sleeper. But by December 1970, Sleeper had fallen out of favor with the Las Vegas PD and was getting demoted which was really just a prolonged firing. By early 1971, John Sleeper would be out of the force and managing a gas station. We can only assume that if John Sleeper stopped by Sonny Liston's house in the final days of 1970, it was to tell Sonny that he'd no longer be able to protect him from the police. Oh, come on, John, don't be like that. I need you. I don't like dealing with unfriendly police. You know it's not my choice, Sonny. I don't have the freedom I used to have. They're watching me. I won't be able to protect you if there's another drug raid. I'm not trying to ruin your night. I wanted to warn you. (sighs) But I got a good thing going. Don't make me pull the plug. I'm not making you do anything. I'm just saying you need to know that I can't help you if they come for you. Be careful out there. John. Johnny. It's almost New Year's Eve. Let's let's have a drink and stop worrying and talking about being careful and all this stuff, okay? Hey, let, let's get our coats and go out. Let me buy you a drink. Least I can do for all you've done. But Sonny had a lot to worry about as the year came to a close. Physically, his body was not what it once was. He was now around 40 years old and had not been taking very good care of himself. He was having trouble whipping himself into shape like he used to, perhaps because he was a few years older than the birth year he had always claimed, or maybe because of alleged drug and alcohol use. Sonny had gambling debts, and he also had a wife and child to support, not to mention a mistress with an expensive drug habit. And his involvement with the mob and selling drugs had made him plenty of enemies. 
More than a few times he'd escaped scot-free as friends of his had gone to jail for crimes that he had participated in. They weren't happy to see him walk free as they paid the price. But if Sonny had wanted to talk about his problems, it wasn't with Geraldine. She wasn't able to get a hold of him in the days leading up to New Year's Eve and began to grow worried. By January 5th, 1971, Sonny hadn't answered Geraldine's calls for more than a week. It was not unusual for him to be MIA for short periods of time, but this was enough to make her nervous. When Geraldine entered the Las Vegas home they shared, there was immediately a bad smell. Geraldine thought it was food that had been left burning on the stove. Sonny was known to do that. But when she went into their bedroom, she was greeted with a horrible sight. Sonny was lying slumped onto the bed, bloated. He hadn't been answering Geraldine's calls because he was dead. Coming up, we'll look at what may have happened to Sonny Liston and who was responsible. And now, back to the story. Sonny Liston had been born circa 1932 to a poor family, becoming a heavyweight boxing champion before easing into a Las Vegas life of crime. Now, in the early days of January 1971, instead of partaking in any of the plans that he'd made for himself over the holidays, he was dead. And an investigation was underway to figure out how and why. From the start, the efforts at investigating Sonny's death were bungled. For one thing, Several hours passed between Geraldine's discovery of the body and her call to report the death to the police. By some reports, Geraldine called Sonny's lawyer and doctor immediately. We can't confirm whether or not this was the case, but there's no question that she waited a considerable length of time to call the police. We don't know what Geraldine was doing in that time, but given her history as a loyal and devoted wife, it seems safe to assume that she was cleaning up anything she would have deemed unsavory, like drugs or evidence of criminal activity. If Sonny's lawyer and doctor were there as well, we can only imagine that they were aiding in those efforts. When Geraldine did finally call the police two to three hours after finding his body, the news spread quickly through Sonny's Las Vegas community that Sonny Liston was dead. When Ash Resnick and Clyde Watkins heard about their friend's death, they immediately hopped into Ash's car and drove over to Sonny's house, blowing red lights to get there as fast as they could. Friends of the deceased probably should not have been wandering around an active crime scene, but they made themselves at home as the police went through the preliminary steps of conducting an investigation. So we can say with confidence that it was a potentially contaminated crime scene that police were investigating several hours after Geraldine had found Sonny's body. This place is pretty tidy, Sarge. Did a whole sweep of the up and downstairs. It's clean. What about the balloon of heroin? What balloon of heroin? On the kitchen table. I'm pretty sure there wasn't a... Oh. How did that get there? I, I could have sworn it wasn't there when I checked this room ten minutes ago. You sure of that? Well, now I don't know. That's what I thought. Case might be closed because of this balloon. Given the way the police in Vegas operated in the late 60s and 70s, it's more than likely that the heroin found in Sonny Liston's kitchen 
was planted. For one thing, it doesn't quite track that Geraldine would have scrubbed the rest of the house clean, but left a large amount of heroin on the dining room table for police to find. If she was concerned about her husband's image, there's no way she would have made that oversight. And two, finding drugs, planted or not, meant that police could get a warrant to search for the lion's share of Sonny's drugs, something they had been hoping to get their hands on for a while. Planting evidence to achieve a desired result was the general protocol for Vegas police in the 70s. No one would have batted an eye. Their initial conclusion for the cause of Sonny's death was that it was either a drug overdose or suicide. But they hadn't released an official cause yet when he was laid to rest on January 9th, 1971. Thousands of people came out to catch a glimpse of the heavyweight boxer's funeral procession. The church was packed with Vegas showgirls, promoters, bookies, and mobsters. Ella Fitzgerald, Doris Day, and Ed Sullivan all had front row seats. The Ink Spots even performed a special rendition of their song, Sunny. The turnout was an indication of how different the perception of Sonny had become since his start as a boxer. It was a far cry from the days in which Sonny endured racial slurs and was considered a monster. At the time of his death, he was a well-loved hero. Geraldine, stoic in her role of wife during Sonny's life, was weathered and frail at his funeral. She approached his casket, which lay open at the front of the room. There, there, Geraldine. Why don't we go sit down? Or get you some tea? No, I need to see him. I need to know. Know what, Geraldine? Sonny! What happened to you, Sonny? Can you tell me what happened to you? (laughs) Oh, dear. Come on now, Geraldine. Geraldine had voiced a thought several had begun to express. Sonny's death was undeniably strange. It came out of nowhere. Suicide seemed unlikely as he was making plans for his future and noted by all around him to be in good spirits. The overdose theory seemed suspicious as well, as the only drugs that had been found in the house after his death might well have been planted. There seemed to be a very real possibility that Sonny's death occurred via unnatural circumstances. But on January 19, 1971, the coroner published his report. It is my conclusion from my findings that Sonny Liston died of natural causes. A poor supply of oxygen to the heart led to congestive heart failure, something perfectly reasonable for a man of his age. I also found traces of morphine and codeine in his system, but not enough to have killed a man of his size. Thus, they have no importance in determining the cause of his death. Police quickly wrapped up their investigation, concluding that there was no foul play involved in Sonny's death. They issued a statement saying as much, and that because he was a known heroin addict, his death was likely the unfortunate result of an overdose. But many of Sonny's friends had a problem with this. They claimed vehemently that Sonny was afraid of needles, and this claim was substantiated not only by one or two people, but by a whole slew of the late boxer's acquaintances. It was confirmed by his dentist, 
who had trouble doing dental work on Sonny because the boxer was too squeamish for administering anesthesia. It was confirmed by Sonny's friend, Davy Pearl, the same Davy Pearl he'd had breakfast with shortly before his death, who knew him intimately. It was also confirmed by Father Edward Patrick Murphy, who had known Sonny for a good portion of his life and had performed his funeral service. But it was most tangibly confirmed by Sonny's former trainer, Willie Reddish, who said that Sonny had actually canceled a planned tour of Africa to avoid getting the necessary vaccinations. If Sonny was afraid of needles, heroin would have been a tough drug of choice for him. There are other ways of taking heroin, but in order for a dose to become lethal, it would generally have to be taken intravenously. Sonny's friends were not convinced that Sonny died of a heroin overdose, and they certainly did not buy that his death was from natural causes. And they had good cause to think so. If Sonny wasn't injecting heroin into his veins, that rules out the possibility that his death was an overdose. Which meant that someone in Las Vegas knew something they weren't sharing. Something that suggested that Sonny Liston's death was really a murder. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next week with our second episode on the mysterious death of Sonny Liston. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Unsolved Murders into the search bar. And for more information on Sonny Liston's death, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Murder of Sonny Liston, Las Vegas Heroin and Heavyweights by Sean Assel, particularly helpful. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, Joel Stein, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Lena Kuyumjan. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Mike Capozzi, Susanna Corrington, Sky King, Harris Markson, Jack Shulruff, Julian Smith, and Rebecca Thomas. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy.